Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Mies, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. So it's been quite a week. Uh, it's been quite a past few weeks. Uh, for those of you who've been listening, you know that I've had a child. So just as the sort of um, preemptive warning, you may hear her making noise in the background. So baby on board, just so everyone knows, please forgive uh, any child noises. Um, I'm working from home on this as per usual, but the interesting thing is that everyone, almost everyone at least, with the exception of people who are considered essential workers, um, are working from home. And so you see, uh, you hear at least a lot of noises from children and family members in the background whenever you do Zoom conferences or teleconferences or anything of that sort. It's pretty fascinating to see the ways that our general work lives have changed um, as a result of this virus. But obviously, our general daily lives have changed dramatically as a result of the virus. And that's what we're talking to Elise, our guest today, about. Elise Mitchell is a PhD candidate in Atlantic World History and Caribbean and Latin American History at the Department of History at New York University and a fellow at the McNeil Center for Early American Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She works on the history of slavery, epidemics, and race and medicine. Uh, Her writing appears in Black Perspectives, The Atlantic, and the forthcoming volume titled Medicine and Healing in the Age of Slavery. Her research is super fascinating um, and really relevant for the time that we're in now. She recently wrote an article for The Atlantic, which we've included in the show notes, as well as additional um, texts that she suggested. But she wrote an article about um, the sort of historical antecedents to pandemics like COVID-19 and the ways that both government officials and populations have dealt with these issues, in particular, um, the ways that these sorts of pandemics affect um, oppressed populations. And so it's really fascinating the ways that she connects past and present as we discuss, um, you know, what are the ramifications of a a pandemic and a virus like uh, COVID-19. It's also worth noting just that um, a lot of the discussion is about the present and the ways that we can be more involved and connected in thinking about other groups in the in the moment um, that are affected by the disease besides the people who actually have the disease um, what are the ways that these sorts of diseases um, or viruses excuse me sort of spiral out into the population and affect us on a social and legal level as well and so these are great issues that um, Elise brings up and I think are really really relevant for us thinking forward and thinking about what we can do not only to kind of keep the fabric of our communities together and our society together, but also um, to make sure that we challenge um, any sort of government overreach or systemic, um, you know, changes that might end up resulting in in harm. Um, So it's a great conversation. I hope you all enjoy it. And also after that, uh, Richard and I do a little bit of a check-in because Richard is in Washington State, as some of you may know, which was one of the early epicenters of the viral infection um, in the United States prior to New York and California. 
Um, but also we check in about just kind of how we're doing uh, and what's going on in our personal lives. Um, I live in Baltimore, Maryland, where things are not quite as chaotic as they are in New York, of course. Um, but we're very close to New York. We're only a few hours away. And so there are certain concerns that our governor has taken into account and tried to sort of preempt um, in fear of becoming like New York. Uh, so it's interesting to kind of talk about the contrast between the two areas and two regions and just the ways that the population has been addressing and dealing with these um, problems. So be sure to stick around after our discussion with Elise um, to hear our check-in of sorts about uh, what's going on with us in the time of corona. Anyway, I hope you all are well and safe and healthy. Just as a reminder to everyone, obviously, please stay inside. Do what you can to help others who cannot get out right now as well. So if you if you have relatives who are immunocompromised, if you have elderly relatives, if you have anyone actually who is in a position where they, for whatever reason, um, physical, mental, or otherwise, cannot help themselves, please do what you can to help them. Um, but of course, within reason and within, you know, with respect to their and your health safety. Um, the other thing I just want to advise everyone is the CDC is constantly updating information. Please go to their website to keep abreast of these changes. Uh, one of the things I recently saw is that they're now encouraging people to wear masks in public. Um, that had been sort of a controversial topic and was people were in and out off and on about that. Um, so I would say please check their website for constant and current updates. Um, and I would also say unfortunately have a healthy sense of skepticism with regard to what the government says you should and shouldn't do with regard to your personal health safety. I know for a while there was, uh, you know, some, some skepticism about the use of masks and the need for masks. And now people are saying, no, we do need masks. So, um, just do within reason what you think is best for your health. That is of course in line with what health professionals say and common practice. Um, because, you know, I think it's better to sort of be on top of things ahead of the curve, if you will, as opposed to waiting um, for the government to be like, oh, now we need to do this. If you go with your instinct and your basic understanding of science, if you have that, um, understand that, you know, disease and viral infections and things like that are sometimes spread through air, um, sometimes spread through particles in air. And so obviously wearing a mask um, can sort of mitigate, at least on a small, lower level, um, some of the risks. So again, use your common sense, use any understanding of science that you have, um, and obviously follow the instructions of the CDC and the guidance, excuse me, of the CDC and health professionals. Um, because right now we are really facing um, a difficult set of times, difficult times now, difficult times in the future. And I just want everyone to be safe and to protect themselves and each other. Uh, so with that said, here's our discussion with Elise. Oh, I should add, be sure to follow us on social media, um, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, you can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Spreaker, wherever you get your podcasts and wherever you get your social media, we are there. Uh, generally speaking, we're not on like the video game sites yet just because it's not something that's my wheelhouse. Um, maybe in the future we'll do something um, on a Twitch stream or something like that. But in the meantime, we're at least on the basic um, social media apps. So find us there by searching for Left POC and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. And of course, also show us some love uh, if you can by visiting our Patreon and that's patreon.com slash Left POC. 
and donating a dollar or more per month to keep this going. Of course, all of our content is always free. We believe as, you know, a leftist podcast that we need to make sure that, you know, we have all of our books and content and articles um, and episodes free to the general public because the point of this is education, proliferation, and discussion. So, of course, we don't want to keep anything behind a paywall. But if you are so inclined, either financially or personally, whatever, and you want to give us a dollar or more, of course, we accept it because we do use your funds to not only support keeping the podcast online as there are storage fees, data fees, things like that, but also in order to remunerate our guests um, to give uh, to a donation or give a donation to the organization of their choosing um, and also to for me to pay our assistant Ariadna and my co-host Richard. So we make sure that we use your funds wisely um, and fairly because we want this to continue to operate in a way that is in line with our principles, our political and personal principles and ideologies. Um, so now with all that said, here's our discussion with Elise. Hi, everyone. We're here today with Elise Mitchell. Um, I wanted to ask you first, just like if you could talk about your research, what you do, um, what your dissertation is about in particular, and how you kind of connected to all of the COVID-19 drama. What is, how does your research kind of flow into this ongoing crisis, if you will? Yeah. Um, so I'm a historian who works on slavery and um, public health and medicine in the early modern period, so before like roughly 1800. And I, for my dissertation work, I focus on enslaved people's experiences of smallpox um, and public health interventions from like different Euro-colonial empires um, to try to quell the spread of smallpox amongst enslaved people and amongst other uh, folks in their colonies. And so the way that my work connects to COVID, I feel like it's like, there are so many ways um, <laughs> just because we live in a world that is very globalized and with tremendous like socioeconomic disparities and tremendous disparities in terms of folks' conditions of living that really remind me more and more as we've watched like the COVID crisis unfold and the pandemic unfold. Um, like of the time period that I study when people were literally being like trafficked across oceans and chains. Um, and not to say that people aren't being trafficked now, but right. it's just like, so, so from that perspective, also in terms of like the, I guess the fact that it's a novel virus, one of the first epidemics that I focus on is the first, is the first recorded smallpox outbreak in the Americas in um, 1519 through like the 15, through a, a good chunk of the 1520s mm -hmm. um and that was in to my knowledge besides hiv aids one of the most widespread pandemics of a novel virus um i know a lot of people have made allusions to the have made comparisons to the 1918 flu as well but my understanding is that that wasn't quite as widespread and didn't quite last as long um mm -hmm. And then also the fact that like pu with public health interventions, part of the nature of them is the kind of surveillance that arises afterwards um, and as part and parcel of public health. And we're beginning to see more and more of that now in terms of like the tracking of, New York, of different kinds of New York license plates, even like in the very early days of contact tracing people who do work on public health and especially public health activists um, have talked about in relationship to other contagious diseases that like, you know, the, this type of contact tracing can be very invasive, personally invasive as well. Um, and 
I mean, in terms of the fact that people are being forced to work under these conditions right now and being compelled to work under these conditions right now is something that I actually don't see as much of in my work because despite all of the brutalities that um, slaveholders and colonists exacted, one of the things that they were willing to do in most cases was to suspend work for people who were suffering from severely contagious diseases um, hmm. in the early modern period. That's um, interesting because, I'm sorry, just to interrupt, I remember, I think it's in Stephanie Smallwood's book, um, Saltwater Slavery, which is amazing and everyone should go out and read it if you haven't already. Um, but there's a section in the book where she talks about this sort of like, um, like a the the appearance of care that's provided by slave owners and slave traders, where they have to try to kind of make sure that people eat just enough to stay alive, or that their exactly. their health is just enough to to be functional, basically as employees uh, or as slaves, right, of the system. Um, and it seems like it's something that we're kind of witnessing all over again. But as you mentioned, it's almost as if it's 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 a different type of cruelty because while the work is not forced by by the hand and by the state in the in quite the same way there's still all of these limitations that workers face where they're not at will to leave really if they plan on surviving um yeah. and they're still the people it seems like employers in large part are still doing this this calculation of like how little can we give them and still have them do okay to get our bottom to reach our bottom line right so the thing is it the question of how little can we give them to still reach our bottom line like that. I mean, that, that certainly tracks historically and I'm glad you brought up Smallwood. So, I mean, like she focused, she's focusing on um, the English and, and British transatlantic slave trade. And she tends to focus more on different, on diseases that aren't necessarily like the most contagious. Like people are feeding and say people to make sure in an attempt to make sure that they don't look too starved or so that they can sell mm -hmm. for a higher price when they arrive in the Americas. They're giving them limited cares in order to like fetch a higher price. But for part of the reason why I chose to study what I do is because this is one of the few examples where before sort of the um, different ameliorative uh, attempts of the late 18th of the late 18th century to try to improve and save people's um like health and lived experiences i mean and and um, um to a certain extent wellness in order to make sure that they would reproduce or to deal with the fact that the slave trade was closing in this early period the times when and everything would come to a full stop would be if there was like a huge, if there was an epidemic of smallpox or another contagious disease on the ship, those ships would then be subjected to extensive periods of quarantine and those enslaved people would not be sold until they no longer presented symptoms of smallpox. And beginning in like the 17th through the 18th centuries, there was a considerable amount of money and um, also like, like different informal and sometimes formal physicians practicing medicine in those spaces to try to keep these people from spreading the disease. So the mm -hmm. fact that we're seeing a novel, super contagious disease and employers are still encouraging workers to come in and not providing them with the leave necessary for them to be able to survive without it is a bit unprecedented because is it, I mean, like, regardless, the system that we have is cruel, but if you're like, I mean, this is an epidemiological impossibility for us to end up ever containing or like dealing with this outbreak if we don't provide everyone with adequate paid sick leave and don't provide people 
with healthcare who mm-hmm. are laid off or who are uh, or who aren't um, American citizens or who fall into any other marginalized group that like tends not to get access to healthcare for a variety of reasons. Um, and so, I mean, it, in a way, it's almost like they're throwing away the bottom line in, in short, mm-hmm. rather than like actually trying to do anything to protect it, um, which I, I don't know. Like, I mean, maybe it's naive, but I mean, that that just surprises me a bit because I, like all this concern over the over the economy and over production um, at the expense of the people who make all of that possible um is really is is a bit astounding to me at this point in time like i feel like they're like like you said like i feel like they're trying to figure out how they can salvage something but it's not salvageable like it's just that's just a fact mm-hmm. um i mean the only parallel i can find in terms of and, and again correct me if i'm wrong here because i know as you are a historian of slavery um i'm sure you have way more nuanced understandings of this particular um, bit that i'm about to bring up but feel free to to add in your thoughts here uh, but one of the things i remember learning just in learning a lot about uh the transatlantic slave trade and its its vestiges and things that were happening in south america and the caribbean in particular is that a lot of people often have this idea that well it was easier to get slaves because of the proximity to Africa um, between the Caribbean and parts of Latin America, right? Like the Western parts of, of um, or sorry, the Eastern coast of Latin America. And so oftentimes what we saw, and also in combination with the sort of intense nature of the types of markets they had there. So like doing things like sugarcane farming and whatnot, um, that you would often see more slaves having much shorter uh, lifespans and often being trafficked at higher rates than what we saw in the U.S., where we would often see, with a few exceptions, um, slaves that were kind of in it for the long haul a bit more. Um, And there was a certain, a different degree of care, um, again, very marginal, but a different degree of care given to slaves because of that, because they had to keep them alive um, and and within working decent working conditions or not decent but with the ability to work I should say um, so that they wouldn't have to constantly get new slaves and renew that that process so I'm wondering if what we're seeing now is kind of like um, a parallel at least to what we saw more in South America and the Caribbean insofar as that our workforces now are expendable in ways that. Um, I'm not saying they're comparable to slavery in any way, but it's more expendable in ways that I, than I think they were in the past. Um, and I'm wondering if there's some sort of parallel between that and the, the ease at which corporations can just pick up and get new employees. Um, and also the sort of loosening of, of connections and any sort of obligations on the part of the corporations and the management themselves, because everything right now is based in this sort of like gig economy model where there's no union protection, there's no healthcare, there's no safety net, and they're not obligated by government or in large part by the people um, to fulfill those duties. So I'm wondering if there's, because I was trying to think like, as you were talking about this, why is it that we're seeing even less care for workers in some cases than we saw in some cases for for this enslaved population, as you mentioned, with regard to smallpox. So I think, I think, honestly, like, I think that, I think that the wealthiest Americans have really deluded themselves into believing that their capital has like separated them from people, from people who could potentially catch this disease and get them sick. Um, because so like part of the difference that you, that you're talking about in slavery has to do with the, 
uh, what um, a historian Dale Tomich has like really properly like named the um, the difference between like first slavery and second slavery. So the first era, the earlier era of slavery, which is the era that I study up until like pretty much the late 1700s, um, was a period in which you had these brutal like sugarcane farming regimes and other brutal forms of agricultural labor centered in the Caribbean and in um, much of Latin America where there were very little protections for enslaved people's lives because the slave trade was in full force. The, the British and the French were not trying to do anything to disrupt it. Once you get into like the later, the later 18th century into the 19th century with the rise of uh, movements for abolishing the slave trade, you see a rise in agricultural slavery in Cuba, Brazil, and the U.S., where a lot of it is depend, where a lot of the, the slaveholders were dependent upon enslaved women's reproductive labor in order, like, for them to have more children in order to reproduce a large enslaved population to work, um, because the slave trade was not quite as active as it was previously, although Brazil was, of course, still bringing people from Africa, as was Cuba. Um, but it was a bit more difficult. It was a bit more expensive. And there were all, and there was also like a strong moral push um, as well and a strong movement to improve the conditions of those folks. But for the period that I study, enslaved people's lifespans, I believe, even once they arrived in the Americas, were anywhere from four to seven years. And, and British slaveholders in the Caribbean, Spanish slaveholders, French slaveholders, even in the, in the Portuguese and the, the parts of, of Brazil where slavery was really active in that earlier period w did treat their lives as though they were expendable, but they recognized, and in some cases passed laws, like, I mean, there's one law from Jamaica where the title of it is that they wanted to quarantine any enslaved Africans who had smallpox in order to protect the lives of the white children because mm -hmm. they knew that the, the forms of labor that they were performing domestic, the different kinds of domestic laborers, tradesmen, all of these different things could pass smallpox from enslaved people to vulnerable residents, people who didn't have prior immunities, who were typically children. Um, and so a lot of the quarantine policies is, and a lot of the different public health initiatives, as well as like adopting smallpox inoculation and other things that I see in this early period when, labor, when enslaved laborers are considered to be extremely um, expendable. Um, and it has to do with the fact that if you don't address the, um, to some degree, the health needs of everyone, the epidemic will continue to spread and kill people who are close to those wealthy, cruel slaveholders. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, like, you know, seeing this, like, I, I've been seeing those different times articles where people have been, like, dismissing their house cleaners or dismissing um, nannies and other people who who worked in their homes and without pay or trying to force them to, like, live in other parts of their property and things for the duration so that they can keep an eye on their health. And um, so all of that, like, it kind of reminds me of how these people are, are of how very wealthy people are, like, trying to control um, the spread of a disease in ways that they actually really can't. Like, I mean, um, at the end of the day, if you're like, you know, nobody has control over who is like cleaning their workplace or who is, you know, feeding them takeout, all of these things, we have to actually account for everyone. And so I guess that's the part that I find really astonishing is that people think that they can actually separate themselves far enough to not contract this disease, especially when it's a disease that like we, as we've seen so far, it's been circulating amongst people who were wealthy enough to sort of travel pretty frequently um, to different parts of, to different parts of the world. So 
it seems like it's a disease that really is impacting folks who are peers of some of these employers um, and not actually and not actually impacting or well, it's beginning to impact people who are at, at the who are working class and people who are poor. But we've also seen it circulating amongst really elite people, too. Right. Um, and the response is interesting because I saw the other day there was a, a wealthy person who had tried to buy a bunch of ventilators to kind of like hoard yeah. and have at home. Um, and <laughs> people were just like, no, nah, it's not going to work. Like, this is not, first of all, you can't do that. But second of all, um, it's not going to help in terms of like, okay, you have ventilators. And then what it's not, not going to help you in terms of if you have the disease, you may not even know how to treat yourself and things like that. But on that yeah. note, um, of hoarding, because your article touches on this quite a bit. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit more about this problem. Um, and in particular, since you brought up the wealthy, I mean, we've seen extreme cases of hoarding in places like Venezuela when there was an economic crisis and the wealthy would hoard things like uh, basic needs, including diapers and toilet paper, um, which is ironic because we're seeing that here as well um, quite a bit. And then um, I think also just the case recently of the guy who had bought you know, a bajillion things of hand sanitizer and then was trying to sell them on the black market for uh, a higher price. Um, And so in your article for The Atlantic um, entitled, The Shortages May Be Worse Than the Disease, I wanted to just have you talk a bit about your article and especially this idea of hoarding um, and the ways that like people respond to epidemics and um, the kind of, I mean, what we should be looking out for, what we should avoid doing, but also is there any way around this kind of behavior um, and what history can show us uh, as insofar as how dangerous that is? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, it, I mean, it's dangerous because the, the disease makes other, like it puts stress on, and the kinds of social inequities and issues that we already have. And so, like, I mean, the hoarding has sort of given way to what seems like, and I can only say this anecdotally, like a, a degree of price gouging. Also, like, I mean, people not being able to just get their their basic needs met on a small scale with things like toilet paper or things like non-perishable foods or things like um, foods that might be, that that might be eligible for like the different kind of food assistant programs that we have here. Um, and I mean, so basically like what, what's happened here is that we've overwhelmed the supply chain, but then additionally, like, like now we're also going to face the issue about whether, about the degree to which all of these things can be reproduced. I know a lot of expert, a lot of experts have like reassured people that like we don't actually have a food shortage in America. It's something that's manufactured. But, um, um, but I mean, you know, I'm concerned, like, you know, there are people who are in charge of distribution that are getting sick, like people, you know, people who work at Amazon, people who do farm work, people who do other kinds of packaging work, supply chain Mm -hmm. disruptions that are happening in other parts of the world as this pandemic continues to spread, um, that will continue to impact us in a variety of ways. I don't think it's going to be to the degree of famine that we see, that, that we see see in the period that I study, where oftentimes really bad smallpox outbreaks and epidemics were followed by um, periods of famine because too many um, enslaved people were ill and could not farm, or like the or the people who were in charge of sort of coordinating the distribution of different goods got sick or died, and mm-hmm. then there wasn't any way to distribute them. Like I, I tell that one story um, about 
also like just about like general government lack of preparedness, which I think is really what we're seeing the most of now in terms of the, the shortage of supply of PPE and other forms of medical gear and the shortage of ventilators, because these are all things that we could have prepared for in January or even December when news of the coronavirus first broke. Like, I mean, it's not like face masks or gloves or gowns go bad. Like a surplus wouldn't be a a terrible thing to have of those things. Even a few surplus ventilators would not have been an issue given that we knew how this could affect people and given the kind of modeling that was being done pretty early on. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I don't know, like it's it's also like, it's it's challenging to think about too, because I feel like like as a result, the the lack of supplies, particularly for medical providers, has like put a lot of pressure on individuals to volunteer in different ways that are like really heroic and I want to celebrate that work. But I also sometimes worry that it's like in a way taking the government off the hook because I feel like individually, like this is an issue where it's one of those things that you can't really control as an individual. Like, sure, we shouldn't hoard. Everybody should be buying like maybe two say maybe you can double up on things or you just continue to buy one thing because you know that there won't be a shortage but that's it's a really difficult to get individuals to do that kind of collective action without any kind of support at a national and in some cases even a local government level to do it mm -hmm. um so yeah i mean like I think that we're going to start seeing more things reproduced because of like the Defense Against Production Act. I, I believe that that went into force, that Trump put that into force. But um, like in terms of what we can do individually, like I, I'm, I'm a little bit, honestly, like I'm just like astonished by how much this entire thing has been mishandled. Um, yeah. Yeah, know. that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. like, it's, it's like, it's like, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, both of you have raised and discussed some excellent points. And some of the things that kind of just came to my mind uh, as I'm listening was uh, about the the nature of the relationship between the the owners and or and the workers or in the case before slavery and the nature of that kind of uh, relationship. And it reminded me, you know, it. I'm familiar, or I think most people are familiar with kind of the concept that in ancient times, you know, Greece, Rome, that there was that that slavery was distinct from uh, ch chattel slavery in the United States and in the South, and uh, that working now is different. But the connections that you guys are drawing, I think, are relevant and important. And what came to my mind, I guess, also was just that the illusion of choice and freedom and the narrative of personal responsibility kind of allows people uh, the ability to step back a bit uh, versus the kind of more paternalistic types of slavery that we've seen in the past, where there was a, a sort of a responsibility to the serf or to the to the slave to be a kind of father figure and to, to fulfill that role, obviously, with all the horrificness that went along with the, the time and everything. Uh, and then how that also played a role in allowing the wealthy to like kind of delude themselves into believing that they're exempt from catching this that that they're above it or even if they catch it they'll have access to the treatment they need and the you know be able to survive it and be able to do those types of things and uh, the another point that both of you were discussing that I thought was very important was kind of the incompatibility with uh, our economic system or the incompatibility between our economic system and any rational way of dealing with a pandemic and that 
we're just really struggling to deal with that. And even this first, uh, the first things that we're seeing have, have been insufficient in a lot of ways. Uh, I guess kind of just while I'm on it, I just wanted to, the last thing that I came to mind more for what you're discussing more recently uh, was how uh, the joking, uh, there was the joke about the person coughing on the food that cost about the same amount as the person that ended up having to get treatment for uh, the COVID-19. And I felt like the, the, the cost of the food and that the cost of the treatment and those both existing in the same space and at the same time was an interesting juxtaposition. And then uh, the celebrating of heroic work, taking the responsibility of the government reminds me of the lemonade stands to, you know, save family members and how they're treated in the media as like celebratory stories of, you know, heroism or, uh, you know, just something to be celebrated rather than kind of the tragedy that they are of a statement of the, the condition of our healthcare system. Yeah. I, I guess I just want to kind of offer those as ideas for further discussion to the points that you were all raising. Yeah, I think that one of the things that both of you mentioned this this idea of the hero, right? Um, in the news, there's been this trope, and I've seen it frequently, in particular on local news, where they're often talking about how, oh, the delivery people are heroes, and the Amazon workers are heroes. And it's like, okay, but this is also their job, and they're obligated to do that in order to survive. So I think there's a sort of sickness, almost a sick, sick humor, if you will, um, into kind of turning what's obligatory work, survival work into this sort of lauded um, heroic position. And not to say that they're not heroes. Of course, what they're doing is heroic and they are helping and like basically sustaining our society as we're on lockdown. That, you know, that is a massive feat. But yeah. I think that within that bit about heroism, we're denying them their their needs, basically. Um, so we're not yeah. calling for higher wages for them. We're not calling for better health protections. We're just saying, look at how great they are. And they're so willing to sacrifice for the society. But it's like, no, they didn't yeah. sign up for that. Like, no. that's not what they expected. And the thing is that in many cases, like, because of the kind of, as it, because of the kind of the way that we've allowed for some of these companies to get to the to amass the amount of wealth that they have and the amount of power that they have and erode labor rights to the extent that they have like this isn't it, the extent to which like that work is a choice for everyone who's involved in it is also like even like that's that's even up in the air like that's not necessarily true for folks this is not what they signed up for and it's unfortunate too seeing that the the sort of heroism rhetoric isn't then translating to anything to anything for people's wages, sick leave or family leave, but then also even not even translating to like how enforcing housing protections that already exist. Like I've been mm -hmm. reading some stories about nurses who are being about travel nurses who are being denied their stays at Airbnbs or who are being kicked out of like roommate situations or other um, living situations because people are afraid that they're going to infect them with the coronavirus because of the data that's been released that medical providers are most likely to contract it because of the life-saving work that they do. And so the fact that this that this like rhetoric kind of like just becomes a, a stand-in for actually, you, you know, treating these people, <laughs> treating people who are saving us right now well and making sure that they're well and that they have their basic, their very basic needs met at the least. Like, you know, I mean, and, and the thing is that there should be much more for that, especially considering the amount of money that is circulating around this problem, but not actually being put towards addressing it. Mm -hmm. 
And what are, I mean, here's my question, right? And thinking in particular about the time period that you study and some of the reactions that we saw um, and rebellions, to be quite honest, coming from people who were oppressed in, in the moment periods of, that you that you study. Um, what do we do about all of this, right? Like where yeah. is the place for these quote unquote heroes to then step up and be able to fight for their rights? I've seen um, that there have been some strikes popping out, popping up here and there. I know there was a strike from um, garbage men recently in a city. I can't remember if it was here or in Philadelphia, I want to say. Um, I know that there's also been a strike proposed by Instacart. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It was Pennsylvania, but Pittsburgh, um, correct. And also there was a strike proposed, I don't know if it's underway yet, um, but by Instacart employees mm-hmm. who are in the hundreds of thousands right now. And they're continuing to hire uh, for Instacart and yeah. yet not offering any protections. And I know as well, um, there's an issue with Uber drivers right now who are on the front lines of this also and yeah. don't have the equipment and things that they need um, to protect themselves from vi- uh, contracting the virus. So I'm wondering, then, yeah. oh no, go ahead. No, and like I mean, Uber drivers in particular, I think about I think about them as working within the system where because our medical systems are overwhelmed right now in places like New York and New Orleans, and we're not yet overwhelmed in Philadelphia, but in parts of New Jersey as well. I imagine that people are probably maybe taking Ubers to go to urgent care facilities oh, yeah. and other things too. So they're like picking basically picking up the slack that the state should have been <laughs> addressing in terms right. of actually having like a public more public health resources available for a crisis like this. And then Um, for putting themselves further in danger, right? If they're transporting patients who have, or potential patients who have COVID-19, where is their safety net, right? And Uber does not offer that at all. No. Um, So I'm curious to know in the period that you study in, is there, are there some, um, I don't know, are there hopeful moments for us to look to perhaps in response to this kind of uh, crisis? And in particular, like, for example, were there revolts and things like that happening amid the spread of smallpox? Um, how did, how, if any, um, were the responses to this uh, by slaves themselves and people who were oppressed during this process? So, I mean, I think one of the most telling examples, although it's not I don't want to overstate the connection, um, but after, after the first outbreak of smallpox in the Americas in the 1519 and the 1520s, there was a major revolt that was led by um, a cacique whose name now I am so sorry that I cannot remember his name, but who was a, a um, and he was Taino, so part of the native people from the Caribbean, led mm-hmm. a major revolt that included enslaved and native enslaved native and enslaved African people. Um, And they drove, they almost drove the Spanish out of the Caribbean and drove them out of certain parts of the Caribbean um, for many years. And a lot of people were able to escape during that. Um, That wasn't directly because of smallpox, but more so because of Spanish incursions and because of the like horrific, like, like encomienda systems that the Spanish introduced and the horrors of slavery that the Spanish introduced at that time. Um, and that revolt, I mean, th- the thing is that like much like the way that COVID-19 has sort of held up a mirror to our society and for people who didn't see it before are now seeing the vast pre-existing social inequities that are now functioning almost like social comorbidities in this situation where people are sick and the pa- the 
system that we had before was untenable, but now we are realizing how much more untenable it is in at the present. And so for, I mean, for the folks who were involved in that, for, in that early revolt, they were or revolting against conditions that already existed that were then exacerbated by the smallpox outbreak in the intervening years to the point that, again, they recognize like how untenable returning to that was. Um, I mean, you know, otherwise, I, I don't often see that much, that many revolts from enslaved people but besides flight during epidemics, um, mm -hmm. during the chaos of it or in the aftermath. But the outcome of that flight was often that the different colonial governments that I study were willing to do a better job of investing in public health and different kinds of infrastructure in the region. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that, like we said earlier, enslaved people were considered to be expendable labor in the period that I study. So there was no commitment to sort of necessarily like rebuilding with those people. Like if they escaped and they, would and they were caught, they would face punishment or they might be left to sort of languish elsewhere um but there but like i did see in moments like in there was a really bad um smallpox outbreak in saint kitts in the 1720s and they ended up putting um uh putting up a free public hospital for free people of color um there they ended up establishing more hospitals that were available to enslaved or other bound laborers in the aftermath there you also would see more incentives for poor European subjects to come to the Americas and make their homes in places that um, other folks had abandoned in the aftermath, during or in the aftermath of an outbreak or where they perished during in the aftermath of an outbreak. Like there was a really strong effort towards rebuilding from most colonial governments that mm -hmm. tended to take into account enough of people's needs that it was, um, satisfactory but the thing that's so that i feel like is is really different about then and now is that everyone agreed that allowing the disease to spread was undesirable whereas here like you know people are talking about herd immunity and things and so i so i think that i think that we are in this moment of like unprecedented failures which is creating room for unprecedented possibilities in terms of labor organizing and just how, and in terms of healthcare organizing and in terms of potential like serious political changes because of how um, quickly our state and federal governments are moving on things that people have long been organizing and asking them to move on before. But mm -hmm. I, but I don't know. I, I feel like I go back and forth every day about whether or not this is something, this is like a moment that's like very hopeful or this is a moment where we might just see a really, a huge like state like overstepping in terms of surveillance, um, given the fact that we've kind of sent everyone indoors and so much of our organizing rely, so much of like the kind of political organizing often relies on like being in community with each other or mm -hmm. not being surveilled on the internet at least. Right. Um, yeah. I have a friend who is in Italy, like she lives there now and is married, has a child and everything. Um, and she was saying that when she leaves the house now, she has to have a piece of paper that says where she's going, her address, 
um, and her purpose for leaving the house, basically. So she has to say, like, I'm going to this pharmacy to pick up this item. My address is so-and-so. My name is so-and-so. Um, and I immediately thought, you know, when she told me that, I'm like, man, when, if and when we start doing that in the United States, it's going to be like a tech, tech bros dream um, because yeah. I can already imagine it being sort of incorporated through um, big tech and surveillance and things like that. So I was wondering just like, how what that will look like in the United States, perhaps, but also maybe what did that look like in the past? Was there a kind of means of cataloging and trying to um, surveil and monitor the movements beyond just enslavement itself, but perhaps within the within plantations or within the workspaces? Yeah. Um, how did they monitor um, and try to limit the the extended, um, you know, the extension of of the disease? Yeah. Well, I mean, it involved really invasive physical examinations. So when enslaved people arrived on slave ships at most ports in the Americas, the British were a bit haphazard about it, but the Spanish, Portuguese, and French were had um, pretty stringent laws and, and typically employed a, either a local surgeon or a surgeon that had been licensed in Europe to examine enslaved people specifically for contagious diseases. And these were like pretty invasive physical exams where they'd be looking in their mouths or like examining their skin or feeling their or feeling their skin to check to see if they had any symptoms of a fever or anything that could be that could potentially be contagious. Mm-hmm. Um, on plantations, typically if anyone noticed that someone presented symptoms of smallpox or another highly contagious disease, typically measles would be a second one. Um, they would send that person away to like a, a makeshift, either an official convalescence hospital or a makeshift convalescence hospital for quarantine. And then um, typically with a caregiver, typically with someone to provide some form of medical care to them. Um, and then allow them to return after a number of days were up. But what this looked like in order to keep enslaved people contained in these spaces. I mean, enslaved people who are arriving on slave ships were often quarantined on them or quarantined on desert islands in some cases where other diseases were allowed to spread, where all forms of violence happened in many cases. Um, and in and on plantations, I mean, you know, there were there are plenty of examples of enslaved people who were held in chains in those spaces or, or otherwise restrained or locked in spaces that had sort of stakes in the doors so that it would be difficult for them to break them or get out. Um, and I mean, we're not living under those kinds of conditions, but this degree of hyper surveillance like is is frightening because the way that Italy and other places have gone about putting these social distancing measures in place is that you have to do it kind of little by little or else the people will not agree to go along with it. And it's 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 unfortunate that we're beyond unfortunate, it's it's cruel that we're also in a position where we don't necessarily know what the next steps of this might be. And for in some places that might include that kind of a past system and then who gets to decide out when we get to end that and on what terms i mean right now we're very focused on on um being concerned about trump lifting some of these social distancing measures too early 
but I'm actually a bit more concerned about lifting them too late because I know that for some of the contact tracing that CDC and other public health institutions have done has involved people's data. And there have been some calls from public health officials to use people's like um, cell phone data and other things to do contact tracing. And I mean, like knowing how invasive that can be from folks who are HIV AIDS activists, um, I'm concerned about how widespread and normalized that may get and how long that might last um, unnecessarily. Right. Like I, I keep thinking about, you know, the prospect of one day you're, I mean, this already happens, but your medical record being part of your, your occupational record. Right. Um, and yeah. in this case in particular, considering the nature of COVID-19 and how it is spread and contracted um, literally by, you know, in some cases, they're even concerned about it being based on if you touch an object or a surface that was touched and handled by someone who had the disease uh, or the virus. I mean, I keep wondering, like, are we going to get to the point where you can't get a job, perhaps, if you've had the disease, um, particularly jobs in manufacturing and in, in shipping and logistics? Um, but the other thing that I was concerned, I've been concerned about is I've seen reports coming out of Wuhan that showed that people who had initially recovered from the disease and tested negative are now showing to have or shown to have been testing positive again. Um, and so yeah. that again, reintrodu reintroduces this concern about like what happens in the future if people can can recontract re the, the, the disease. Um, what does it mean for, for work and labor and, and job security, right? Um, what does that and look housing like? Security, and housing security, because I mean, I've, I've seen several people post letters from their landlords saying that they wanted to know if they were if anyone in the building was infected with the disease. Mm -hmm. I've seen examples of some landlords wanting to do temperature checks on residents, you know, and there's also like like the issue that I mentioned before of nurses not being able to get secured housing. Like, I feel like that's the front that we're already seeing this on. And in terms of employment, we may see it on a potentially on an even broader scale. Um, and in, term, and in terms of the reinfection, yeah, it's just like, I mean, we don't know whether or not people develop immunities to this. Also, like there were botched testing issues in the earlier days that it might not be clear um, whether or not, you know, people people's test results were correct. Um, and I mean, just given the unevenness of medicine here, that's like consistently affect the ways that people are treated and the ways that people's medical documents are kept depending on their race or class um, or gender. In some cases, I'm concerned about the accuracy of that recording and also who will be targeted in all of that too. Um, I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think like we're, I think like it's difficult because things are changing day by day, but I, I feel like the best advice that I can give is to like, con is for folks to continue to like follow the leadership of people who have been organizing around these issues related to freedom for a very long time. Um, because watching the efforts like to, to try to do mutual aid, but then also the, the strike efforts and including like labor strike efforts, but also like the different rent strike efforts that are coming up too, um, I think are, are a way forward in terms of like really having to double down to fight for the kinds of rights that we e were even taking for granted a couple of weeks ago. 
in some cases um, because these things don't necessarily get like life doesn't necessarily go back to how it was before um even in extremes like i i just think i think that like the at hiv aids is a really good case for thinking about that just because like you know people the solution was that everyone just changed the way that they have sex not that we actually do anything seriously about trying to eradicate or improve the quality of life of people who are dealing with the, with hiv aids um and i'm concerned about especially with the governments that we have in place here in the US, but also around the world with the different right-wing governments, I'm concerned that they that there won't be a priority, that the bar will be really low for whatever life looks like after this. Um, and and we're, we might have an uphill battle there as well. The All the things you guys or y'all are talking about is really resonating with me, particularly talking about the hyper surveillance. And one of the things that's recently come out is some of the, like the biomedical type apps have been talking about trying to share information so like tracking which is blurring a line with HIPAA laws and as you mentioned the types of record keeping or the ways records are kept across communities and uh, also reminded that we're still living with a lot of the uh, ramifications of the Patriot Act after 9-11 yeah. and so like uh, as you mentioned the longevity of some of these uh, more uh, authoritarian or uh, you know the, these types of uh, uh, approaches is definitely concerning to me as well one of the things that uh, you kind of talked about and i was just kind of curious to hear more about if if you had something was uh, we're familiar with the concept that like economically politically and geographically borders influence uh, a lot of human behavior and i was just wondering uh, kind of what lessons uh, can we learn from the history that you've studied about uh, kind of both international and intranational so within nations yeah. how, how those types of uh, regional disputes and those types of things are so one of the things that comes to mind in particular is the the recently trump has been floating the idea of quarantining new york connecticut and new jersey and then also thinking about the beaches in florida that uh, while the United States is probably going to increasingly be kind of shunned internationally as being for travelers having to be quarantined when they arrive, is there going to be like what kind of lessons or information can we get about uh, more intranational kind of uh, movements in that way, I guess? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, like the thing is that borders, borders are like such a fallacy. Like, I mean, although we try to enforce them, they're always permeable. And locking down folks doesn't, is not typically that effective in the period that I study. Well, because the thing is that as soon as you lift the lockdown, then there's the potential for the disease to spread if you've affect, if you've like fully thoroughly managed to lock it down somehow. And I don't know how you do that in the United States without tremendous violence and, and human rights violations um, to thoroughly lock down any of those states. But then also, like, the thing is that we have to pay attention to vectors. And that's one of the mistakes that was made early on was the fact that there that the way that we sort of presented information about the disease diluted the public and in some cases, public officials into believing that it would somehow remain contained in China, despite China's um, regular like international trade and different business engagements and things too that were going on beyond the borders and there was very little attention paid to the different potential vectors for the disease and the same is 
is kind of the case now in terms of the efforts to contain it. I mean, folks in New York were not, I feel like the, the government in New York kind of came to the realization late that New Yorkers move a lot and it would be really beneficial to contain the disease as much as possible in that state and in, and in New York City um, and to take pretty and, and to prepare to, to sort of provide people with the medical care necessary for them to get better and, and move on with their lives rather than potential than letting it potentially spread. Um, and for the period that I study, I mean, the, the, the issues that the, the solutions that were most useful were when they recognized the vectors rather than trying to pin the disease to particular locations. Um, so like, for instance, there was one um, slave trading and, and also like the, they sold other things too, but they were mostly slave traders. The, the South Sea Company would um, transship enslaved people from different British islands to other parts of um, the Spanish Americas and, um, and what was British North America. And they were notoriously spreading smallpox because they were not quarantining enslaved people beforehand and they were also not like keeping everybody in terrible in terribly unsanitary conditions but pinning the trying to pin the outbreaks on different ports or on different islands wasn't really that effective for stopping the spread what stopped the spread was recognizing that the south sea company was not doing what it needed to do to protect public health and forcing them to essentially by putting pressure from the spanish government and from different colonial or british governments on them to to change um, to change their public health practices, and so I mean I think that in terms of attempting to to shut this within borders, especially since the symptoms are so mild and people can spread it while they're asymptomatic, I, I don't think that we actually have the surveillance capability to do that. And I think that and I think that that's one of the things that I don't know weirdly like makes me almost optimistic about this moment is that we're recognizing the limits of some of those like it kind of authoritarian in regimes to an extent like i mean even even in places where they've gotten it somewhat under control like you know reinfection is possible when you have people coming in from other places as well and so you know we can't we can't live in isolation that's not actually feasible um so i i just think that there, there's going to have to be a different a different way around that um and i, I feel like especially for new york and new jersey like i mean these are states that have major international ports that are thoroughfares for other states like that would then put a lot of other people a lot of other americans in a really precarious position in terms of getting access to medical supplies foods capital like a variety of things i think the point you raise about uh looking at the public health practices rather than trying to use more uh, superficial labelings of you know geographic regions but actually you know and also looking at where the infections are uh, within reason without using a hypervigilant state, which will be insufficient, yeah. I think, in the ways that you mentioned. And some of it is predictive, too. Like, I mean, I think it would almost be more it would almost be more productive to think about the relationships between different countries and different states rather than thinking about how you might lock them down, because recognizing those relationships, you can predict how the disease might spread. Like, I mean, here in Philadelphia, there have been concerns. They're not tracking people or anything, but they are encouraging people who've been to New York recently or who are coming from New York to quarantine themselves for 14 days. And they're recognizing that people are in some cases fleeing New York for Philadelphia because we do have a few more critical care beds per capita than some other cities. Um, and, but, you know, thinking, 
predicting that relationship and then preparing according, accordingly rather than trying to stop it is probably, is, is A, much more like humane in general, but also more likely to be effective as well. Like recognizing, okay, Philly is near New York. Okay, what other cities are in the area? People might be going to Long Island. People might be trying to go to New Jersey. They might be trying to go to Connecticut. How can we prepare these states to receive these people rather than how can we prepare to turn them away? Um, I think is is more is more accurate, and I mean I this I think the same thing goes for national board for national borders. Like rather than and it, saying that we're not going to allow any more people to immigrate here, preparing to receive them would actually help stall the spread a lot if we were able to prepare to provide people with adequate housing, with adequate health care, without any penalties for or potential encounters with ICE for seeking medical treatment or even doing basic things like going grocery shopping and things like that. Um, or and removing impediments for people to get to their families or other loved ones who they might be trying to stay with um, would all be in line with social distancing and be in line with actually getting the pandemic under control rather than trying to prove some fallacy that we could actually make the borders impermeable. I think that's an excellent point you raise about the with uh, it just reminded me of seeing some pictures of uh, immigrant labor uh, farmer farm workers uh, in their bunkhouses and how they're just uh, I mean designed to be able to be hotbeds for spreading uh, of exactly. the COVID and then how it basically holds up the mirrors you mentioned before to society that like the solution to that is to have an equitable society that can. Uh, adjust in such a way that it can provide the things like you said adequate housing adequate health care and adequate uh, all those things types of things for the people that we're dependent on for providing those things like the food that we eat every day uh, yeah. so and like all those connections i just feel are very important and i'm, I'm glad that you help uh, kind of highlight them so on a positive note, I'm trying to be positive through all of this. I mean, it's like incredibly anxiety inducing and and there's so yeah. many issues that it's like hard for me to wrap my head around that this is real. Um, but in trying to think positively, you had mentioned earlier that um, in some of the cases that you studied, you'd seen freed, freed slaves, for example, establish hospitals or at least hospitals that were established for freed people. If you could go into that a little bit and perhaps maybe there's a silver lining there in terms of thinking about ways we as community, as members of a communities um, can come together and help each other. Um, yeah. I know it's sort of difficult because we can't have contact with one another right now, um, but if there's some sort of alternative means through which we can provide support and particularly support that the state is unfortunately not coming through on. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the local initiatives to um, provide mutual aid are really heartening um, just because you're, we're getting to see sort of, one, it's encouraging people who might not otherwise come forward in some cases to get the aid that they need. So we're having, we're starting to see, and the fact that some of this work is being recognized at local government levels means that people are now being aware of the diversity are now being forced to face really, because they were probably aware before, but forced to deal with the diversity of needs that people are having. Um, also just like, I mean, there's, I think that in a lot of places, 
the way that we do public health and access to medical care is going to change dramatically after this just because of how everyone um, has been so affected and also the kind of after effects that people will be facing with this, you know, because there are there are other diseases and there are other medical emergencies that will unfold during this and, and that have unfolded during this and we're recognized and all of our government officials um, and us are recognizing that like we need to really have a more effective like public health care system and access to universalized health care is something that's be gaining a lot more traction um, despite the people who are leading in the democratic primary right now so i'm i'm hopeful in that sense that ideas that people once thought were not feasible or were ridiculous are now really getting taken up on a on a much wider um scale by uh, people who probably were not necessarily on board with them before um i mean i don't know like i mean looking at my database like i because i have i have a database of like a few hundred epidemics and i, I would say like typically the outcomes are either that like most people died and we've taken the steps the public health steps necessary to ensure now that I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, like, I think most of us will survive this. And then the other two outcomes are that the colonial governments gave free people the things that they wanted and needed in order to survive afterwards, um, in order to prevent unrest and in order to make sure that they stayed within their borders or within their different sort of cities and, and settlements, um, or the people, organized and fled or organized and revolted in the in the example that I gave you earlier. So I think that one way or another after this is over, we're going to see increased access to healthcare. But I think that we are gonna have to work together to push to make sure that it's inclusive of everyone. Um, because I feel like I'm, you know, we're still hearing from certain pockets of the Democratic Party that they just want affordable healthcare, not universalized healthcare, and we're still even hearing from different pockets of people who want universalized healthcare that they want that to only include American citizens. So um, I think that we might have to push, but the but the fight might be a little bit easier given the scale of this. And also we may, I hope, potentially have some more international pressure towards that given that so many countries have like are concerned about Americans coming to to visit them because of the because of the way that the pandemic is raging here um especially in the Caribbean right because I've seen so yeah. many cases of um you know like cruise ships and people who are tourists in both Cuba Jamaica and other places um that are posing risks to local populations and many of the people who are the carriers of the disease are from the West. Um, and yeah. I know in particular Italy and the United States. Yeah. And I mean, I'm wondering the extent to which the Caribbean will be able to find, I'm hoping that maybe the Caribbean countries will be able to find allies in other nations that have a little bit more, like a little bit more political power because they're in such a difficult position because the tourist industry is also what sustains many of these island economies. Um, and so while they're currently concerned and not, and not allowing um, ships to dock and other things too, I'm just a little bit wary of how long they'll be able to hold that off without um, other nations support um, outside, potentially outside of the Caribbean as well. Um, 
because this is because I mean they're also going into they're also going into hurricane season there and and much of the US south is also going to be facing that as well in the coming months too and I just I'm I'm worried about how attached people how necessarily in some cases people are attached to their economies you mentioned the the cruise industry and it just kind of uh, reminded me from your piece talking about also uh, the types the kind of choices that our society's facing moving forward about are we going to have a more equitable society that deals with the types of shortcomings that we're seeing as a result of this pandemic or are we going to shift more towards an authoritarian kind of crack like a uh, top-down society that you know waits for enough people to die out so that they can appease the people that remain and kind of pursue that type of approach, which I think we've seen floated politically in a variety of circles, kind of a, not as directly, but essentially, you know, if some, if some of the retirees or pensioners die off, then economically that might not be the worst thing is what's been floated, I think, in by some politicians in the UK and, and uh, elsewhere. And what I thought of is kind of, you mentioned in your piece about, the ships that were that would just uh, leave the sick on the ship and uh, in the deplorable conditions and just until essentially the sick would die off and then would just kind of put the what was remaining through the types of inspect the invasive inspections that you talk about and that there is a there is a part of our society that is willing to pursue those types of remedies towards these types of situations and so that uh as i think a lot of uh, people throughout history have reminded us we can't just count on uh, time uh, to bend towards justice, but that it takes an active engagement with uh, resisting those types of forces, I guess, and just some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, it takes an active engagement. Exactly, exactly what you said. Um, But I also think that where, I guess like to, it's, it's like pessimistic and optimistic that we're reaching a point where so many people have nothing else to lose that I think that is a point that we have where, where like mass organizing can happen is that people, people are losing everything. People, some people are going to lose everything. People are going to lose folks that are close to them and they're going to be looking for solutions. And my hope is that um, rather than sort of allowing the social distancing to let that the anger about that, the grief around that, the anxiety around that, the isolating is that, I mean, I'm, we're seeing more and more people are coming together around this and coming together to organize, to improve the living, to improve their living conditions currently. And also to sort of do away with things that were not conducive to survival in the past, in the recent past too. Um, and so, so my hope is that like that kind of like can push us forward in a different in a different kind of way um but i i don't know like every day things change um are you seeing are you seeing these kinds of coalition building and and things on the west coast um Uh, it's kind of uh, a mixture in that you know there's people are in a variety of economic circumstances and with the the political scene as it is people are unsure about what kind of aid they can foresee in the future and then with various reactions at the local and state levels there's uh, an inconsistency about what kind of uh, support they can expect regarding rent mortgage uh, and so on and so forth but i think you also speak to an excellent point about how that 
on the first of April, there's going to be some buildings that are having a rent strike, whether they realize it or not, yeah. and whether it's or organized or not is very important. And and I think uh, for me, I guess what it comes to my mind is I I, I see that the the potential of the moment, but then uh, I see that potential can be uh, capitalized and harvested by not just you know people that want to build stronger communities that are more resilient towards these types of things but people that want to uh you know basically embolden the disaster capitalism that exploits these for personal gain i really appreciate your time and your commentary at least um i think it's really important for us to always be connecting obviously past and present issues but in this particular case i mean our lives really depend on it in a lot of ways and i think the lessons that can come from history um can show us a lot, at least in regard to what we can prepare for, right? Um, maybe yeah. not so much about solutions, but certainly the protections that we need to have in place for ourselves um, with regard to like the government and things like that. Um, because as I agree with, as both of you have mentioned, you know, I think this can take an authoritarian turn really fast and already has done so at the private sector level, private sector level, of course. Um, but I think certainly at the government level as well. And we have to be as vigilant as humanly possible against that within the means that we have right now, which are very limited. Um, and I think, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a catch 22 because obviously it's for our safety, but at the same time, I think it prevents us from in some ways having a response that may be necessary um, to government overreach in the very near future. So, yeah. Yeah. Deep, deep. One, long <laughs> one just uh, I, I wanted to try to bring us to a more optimistic note. I noticed you mentioned about the importance of uh, political imagination, which is a, a yeah. phrase that I first heard from uh, Professor Glaude, but uh, that has been kind of a guiding idea for me. And then uh, I guess how we can take this moment to realize how interconnected our well-being is with the rest of society and, and rather than an individualistic outlook that's definitely prevalent in the United States, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, the thing about, the thing about viruses that like made me want, made me really interested in the way that they operate in social history is just that they operate on like the logic that almost everybody's fair game. Like it's, it's collectivist in a way and, and the way that you respond to it, if you actually want to deal with it is, to be even more collectivist than the than the viruses itself. And so this is like, you know, this has pushed us to really see, like, I mean, the, the, the social inequities that we have in our society, I feel like I've seen more news coverage of people who are homeless, of people who are undocumented, of people who are in, working in the gig economy, of people who are low-wage laborers, of people who are uninsured than I have in a long time. And I think that that is something that's really hopeful that we're now having a mainstream political discourse that's inclusive in that way. And so I think that the, the challenge will be to like say, how do we keep that going and how do we make sure that that translates to policy? And we're starting to see that translate to some policies in terms of like the eviction bans, which I hope will enable for like more rent strikes to be well organized and for people to feel like they can actually participate in something like that. Um, and And I think like the fact that we're seeing strikes happening across different countries amongst people who are working in the gig economy will be empowering and that that's getting covered too is will be something that's 
will be empowering for folks who are working in those industries to be able to participate and for people who are not working in those industries to be able to protect and advocate on those folks' behalf. Um, and I mean, like I said, like the, the thing about the thing about contagious diseases is that it's not just about making sure that people have sort of the like conditions that are conducive to just survival or like as, as some academics say, bare life, but you actually have to be responsive to the fact that people need things for their well-being like you can't if everybody's alive at the end of this but we still have large homeless and incarcerated and detained populations we will just be sitting ducks for another type epidemic similar to this or potentially worse than this to to spread and kill and so we're recognizing that this way of living that the way that we built our society is not sustainable for anyone's survival if we're not actually like taking care of people seriously um, and so I just hope that we, I hope that we keep the momentum going around that, um, and that this is something that like everyone in in this country and and folks in other countries too continue to to keep at the at the front of their minds and at the front of their actions moving forward. Thanks, Elise, and thanks so much for being with us today. Um, we really appreciate your time and all of your research and things like that. Obviously, incredibly relevant always, but particularly now. Um, where can our listeners find more about your work and find more about you? Okay, um, thank you. Thank you guys both so much for having me. I, I, I really enjoyed the conversation and, and was happy to do it. Um, so I have a website. Um, it's EliseAMitchell.com. And you can also find me on Twitter at by EliseAM. Awesome. Thank you so much, Elise. Absolutely. En enlightening and, and a pleasure. This is part two of our discussion about COVID-19, the Rona, some people have named it um, affectionately. And I, uh, so we're both in, in cl I'm close to an epicenter. Richard is in a former epicenter of sorts. Uh, Richard, you're in Washington State and I live in Baltimore, Maryland, but used to live in New York. And obviously New York is very close to Baltimore. It's like only a few hours driving distance away, a short two hour train ride away. Um, so there's a lot of commuting in between um, Baltimore and New York and like the DC area in New York. So yeah, Amtrak circuit um, viral activity going on. So things are a little bit weird right now. Richard, how have things been holding up for you? Tell us a little bit about Washington and Washington State, what happened there, um, how the state and people there have been handling things. And then I'll talk a bit about Baltimore as well. Yeah, in Washington, it's been interesting. Uh, I've uh, been discussing recently about how just I've been trying to be more active and out and engaging and stuff. And so personally, on a personal level, it's been uh, a big shift from a shift that I was just making. So that's been a bit turbulent. But uh, as far as what's been happening generally in the state, uh, we were one of the first, we had one of the first uh, reported and documented cases. Uh, uh, I've seen different days referenced, but essentially between the 19th and the 21st of January was uh, the first documented case in Washington. And uh, since then, it, there's been a, a growing reaction locally and as we've seen in the nation and just as we see in the nation, it's been a bit staggered, uh, both uh, at the state level and then at the municipal and city level. And so one of the kind of notorious or aspects of it that I think is uh, relevant that I wanted to discuss or try to just uh, present was uh, it, 
one of the ways that it broke into national news and became started to become more of a issue uh, beyond just a, a something that was going on somewhere else was when there was an outbreak in a nursing home in uh, Seattle area and uh, essentially uh, it had killed at least at the time uh, of the reporting and I'm looking at it and Reuters is uh, March 9th that had killed 13 of the patients and one of the kind of uh, through lines that we've seen nationally and has just started to kind of uh, catch up is a lack of testing and what they reported uh, in March or on the 9th was that it's they still didn't have test kits uh, for 65 employees at that nursing home who were showing yeah. symptoms mm. and so uh, it the kind of inadequate preparation at the national level was also re reflected at the local level where uh, the first case was in Washington in January, in late January, and as late as uh, March, in the middle of March, they still are near the middle of March, they still didn't have test kits, not just to, for, you know, to detect community spreading, which at that point would be something that you would want to monitor, but to just be able to test the people that are caring for the most vulnerable part of our population. And so that's when it kind of sunk in how this was going to be a much bigger uh, problem than any of the media or politicians were kind of conveying at the time. Hmm. I mean, there was a, I remember when the reporting was happening and it used to just be like, Oh, only old people can get this right or like only old people only the elderly are like as deeply impacted and so and i think part of it was based on that particular case those sets of cases actually in washington state right i think that's kind of what helped fuel this idea that like oh it's not going to sound as big of a deal for young people right because it's all these old people dying so just like let mm -hmm. them let 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 fate take care of them is sort of the way people ended up saying it. I mean, they weren't literally saying well, some people were literally saying it like Republicans. There was a guy recently on on Fox News who literally said like the elderly should sacrifice themselves. Um, but I think in the beginning it was kind of like, oh, yeah, it's an elderly disease or it impacts people who are who have like other health issues, um, but it's not going to affect me. So it's not that big of a deal. Let me just keep doing what I'm doing and living my life. And then we saw that that was not true and that backfired pretty dramatically. And now we have people in the hospital that in the U.S. at least are predominantly younger um, than older. So interesting turn of events. But um, with regard to social distancing, how are you doing? I know you said that you you were frustrated because you just kind of started branching out more in, in terms of politics and things like that. But how have you been on a personal level, I should ask, um, in this process of just staying on lockdown, basically? I guess, you know, one of the weird things that I've been thinking about recently is I felt like psychologically it shouldn't be much of a adjustment for me because I had, like, getting out was the hard part for me in the first place. But something about the rest of society kind of also shuttering in has kind of... I don't know how to really describe it, but it's it's given it's presented a new level of anxiety on top of it that I hadn't anticipated. Uh, so I, I guess that would be kind of one of the things about feeling like I can't go out versus exactly. I don't want to. Like yep. that has changed the dynamic, <laughs> has changed how I, I perceive it, how I feel it. And so like that's been a, a bizarre experience. Uh, and then just quickly, I guess, uh, statewide some of the things that I've noticed when I have gone out is that there's a variety of levels of enforcement 
and kind of consideration for social distancing. So, mm. uh, you know, like uh, some gas station attendants will be wearing gloves. Some won't. Uh, some will be wearing masks. Some won't. Some uh, will have a sign on the front door saying, you know, kind of reminding people to keep a distance in, in line. Others won't. Some will have a cashier that is actively, you know, reminding people. And so, sometimes the cashier is just doing the cashier thing. And it's like, so we see how kind of the individualistic approaches that we have in our society are manifesting in how we're dealing with the virus. And like, that's also relatable to, uh, I've seen, you know, a lot, uh, not just older people or not just uh, younger people, but people across the spectrum that have kind of taken a, an approach or perspective that this is all overblown and that it's it's merely a, an attempt at you know instituting a police state and all those types of things and that we should and we've seen kind of on online with the you know things like licking things in public as a act of defiance towards that kind of uh, mentality and just in washington i and my experience out i've seen that as well not that I've literally seen anybody like licking things in public or anything like that. But <laughs> I, I've seen people that like just generally don't see like they're aware of the social distancing kind of protocols and stuff and are just disregarding them because they don't mm. think that it's legitimate. And then also just quickly, one more aspect is just that there's kind of a, a interpersonal dynamic and like, it's like, Oh, are you saying I'm sick because you're trying to stay away from me? I thought we were friends. And I think, you know, it's like, are you avoiding me because of that? Like, and so uh, depending on how people internalize the the risks involved in the the necessity of the types of social isolation people are internalizing and personalizing distancing that way as well mm -hmm. and so i've seen some of that personally mm. i mean i've it's been weird here because so i live in baltimore for those of you who may not know um used to live in new york and i'm obviously super concerned about all of my friends and colleagues and whatnot in New York and the New Jersey area as well. Um, just because of everything I keep seeing coming out of there, it's like horrifying. Luckily, no one I know has it yet, um, but they're definitely, you know, they have like parents and elderly relatives and whatnot that they're worried about. Um, and, you know, it's just been really depressing, to be honest. I agree with you with regard to the um, isolation part, because I too am, I'm not a homebody, but I do a lot of work from home because I'm writing my dissertation and I'm like, you know, the podcast is done from home, et cetera. So most of the time I'm at home and then, you know, I have my basic like errands that I run and whatnot. And because I was recently pregnant and you hear my baby in the background. So sorry about that. She's trying to contribute as much as she can to left POC early on. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> she too is a left POC. Um, but she, yeah. So, the, so just in the process of being pregnant, you know, I was like going to the doctor a lot and my doctor was within walking distance. So I would walk to the doctor's office. The doctor's office was in a hospital. Um, and that's also the same hospital where I gave birth and where my daughter was actually um, admitted into the NICU for respiratory problems of all things during this crisis. Mm. I'm like, oh my God. So it was kind of scary to be in a hospital. Um, initially things were fairly mellow, but she was, I had, I gave birth on the 21st of February. So this was before things really kind of like got crazy. Um, but while she was in NICU, she was there for three weeks, things got progressively worse on the ground and out in like the outside world. And I talked about it in the, one of the, uh, the episodes that I recorded the last, I recorded two episodes recently. And so there's one that's called like on babies and coronavirus. And I discussed my experience, um, there. So I won't go into it any further here, but it was just really scary being in a hospital and, 
knowing that like there might be people with COVID-19 like walking all around and my baby has respiratory problems. I have asthma. So like, what does that mean for us? Are we going to be safe going back and forth to the hospital as a space that's like kind of ground zero for um, infection and viral drama? Um, But then the other thing was just that, as you said, it's weird to be at home when you have to be at home and not when you just want to be at home. It makes home a very different kind of space. It also makes home a different kind of space because like my husband was laid off from his job, which um, was really scary as well for us just because we just had a baby and like this kind of sense of financial security is gone now. Um, And I think even if he still had his job, the sense of financial security would be gone because of COVID-19, right? Like everybody's living on edge right now in terms of like if their job is going to be safe. And even if they do have a job that's stable, will it be stable after this crisis? Like, is it even going to be a job that people deem necessary, you know, or like worthy of of keeping around? Um, So anyway, lots of questions and and concerns um, floating and you know, I just, I'm trying to wrap my head around the fact that this is happening at all. Um, I've seen in my state alone that the cases are literally multiplying exponentially uh, with no end in sight. And like, they're doing really well here in Maryland. In Maryland, they've been good about, you know, encouraging social distancing and encouraging people to quarantine themselves at home. They've encouraged people early on to not overload the hospital system. To the best of my knowledge, most of the hospitals here are okay in terms of staffing and equipment because our governor has been really good about, you know, making sure that they have what they needed. Um, I haven't heard anything yet, although I could be wrong about shortages in the hospitals of respirators and things like that. But again, we didn't have that that big of a number um, of cases, although now the reported cases have like tripled or something in the past week. So that's kind of scary. Um, and, you know, just just... I had a, like, I'm having some allergy slash sinus issues just because of the change of seasons. And every time I'm at home, I'm checking myself and thinking like, hey, do I have it? Do I have it? Do I have it? Like, what are my symptoms? What's happening to me right now? You know, is my sore throat about COVID-19 or is it about allergies? Mm -hmm. Um, So, and especially as like a new mom, it's really scary. So I'm just trying to keep myself healthy and like making sure that, you know, I can keep the house afloat without getting COVID-19. It's like, yeah, is this shortness of breath from anxiety or like is it COVID? Exactly. Like, what is it? Yeah, it's, I've WebMD'd myself into a frenzy a couple times, like throughout the weeks that we've had this. And I just, you reminded me to, I should mention for the hospitals, I haven't heard of uh, being overwhelmed uh, yet uh, locally for me in Seattle, which is closer to the epicenter, uh, they have been dealing with a variety of issues. Uh, one of the things that just sprung to my mind was that there was the nurses that were going to the hospital and spending their days there were still getting charged for parking. And it was just kind of this bizarre uh, thing where, you know, they were like not sure about their financial security in general and like what the rent situation or mortgage situations were going to be and like all these types of things and whether they were going to get sick uh, working and all this types of thing and then to be getting billed for parking in the midst of this uh, emergency just seemed kind of ridiculous especially amid an empty city like that just kind of made it that much more absurd yeah for sure it's i don't know the emptiness uh, is also weird too, just to add to that, just really quickly. Mm-hmm. When you go outside, like I walk my dog sometimes in the morning, of course, trying to make sure I go early enough that nobody's on the street. Um, and when I'm walking him, it's just like a ghost town. Like everything is closed and 
you know, everyone's in their homes and it's just very weird because I'm used to seeing other people walking their dogs or like people going to get coffee or whatever. And right now it's just like complete silence and it's weird. weird. Yeah. See the thing here is it's like, I'm more out towards the, between the burbs and rural area. And so like, I feel like out here it's a kind of a more casual attitude in that, like it's not as dramatic of a difference, like traffic's lighter. Mm-hmm. And we actually did recently have a stay at home order in place. So, I, but I didn't notice a dramatic difference between when the stay in order uh, for the state uh, came in place and prior to that, uh, just in general traffic flow. And there was a no, there was a slightly noticeable difference, but it wasn't as kind of as stark as I've seen in places and cities where I've seen like drone footage flying over empty streets and where it basically looks like an intro to some sort of apocalyptic movie. Mm-hmm. And so it is very, uh, it's kind of weird just because we have seen an increase in testing in Washington, but we haven't seen the kind of rapid growth and spike in cases that seen in New York. And so it gives me hope that the, even though that we were generally late and that and insufficient in a variety of ways, as I started on top mentioning the, the nursing home situation that we've been able to not be the worst case scenario. That was kind of, I started to have in my mind when I first started here, Oh, we're not even testing people that were around people that died from this disease and have to continue caring for people that are vulnerable. Like that was that gave me the idea that, oh, like we are really, really in trouble. But seeing kind of the the numbers as they've borne out so far gives me some hope that it's not going, at least initially going to be as epic. But one of the issues that we're, I think, going to be bumping up against increasingly is the pressure to restart the economic aspects of it uh, that are, are lagging behind and to also undermine the kind of collectivist uh compromises that congress and our political system is having to make in order just to keep society functioning without the economy going as as it typically would also one of the things that i was reminded of is that i have seen reports though of sort of uh, preemptive rationing out of a concern Mm -hmm. that there isn't going to be an adequate national response to provide the ppe gear that they need Uh, and then also one of the other things that uh came to mind is a local uh shelter for uh there's both a shelter and it also deals a lot with uh it's a place a meeting for uh naaa those types of meetings as well and so it's just kind of a, a central place for that they also had a case uh there which has uh brought attention to kind of the situation as far as uh, what both the the homeless po- or the houseless populations in Seattle and uh, the Tacoma area, the two major metropolitan areas in Washington, and then also the services and the people that provide those services to those people, uh, not having adequate access to the same gear that uh, would help protect both them and the populations they serve, who are often also vulnerable due to medical uh, comorbidities and. Uh, with if the hospitals and the medical gear or medical professionals aren't able to have reliable access to those things, then the people that serve the most vulnerable people in our society don't have access to those, then they're going to be uh, more hesitant to be able to serve those communities uh, for, because it puts their own families and own communities outside of the at risk as well as themselves. And the 
if they can't help if they're sick as well. So like uh, there's a kind of a, a chain reaction and a lot of unseen uh, consequences that are really just kind of shining a light on problems that already existed in our societies. And for me, I'm seeing these at the local level, but that were considered uh, basically kind of acceptable or something that we could essentially keep society churning despite those things. And now the, this virus and the resulting impacts is, really brought and shine or brought to the forefront that we can't that our society can't keep functioning that way and mm -hmm. when it does it puts the entire society at risk <laughs> not just the most vulnerable people yeah it definitely does i mean it's just like, just thinking about everything everything has changed completely right now i mean i feel like it's one thing to just have an economic crisis it's another thing to have an economic crisis in a pandemic like happening at the same time. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it definitely changes the way that we respond. It changes like how we feel on a personal level. Like, how can we respond on a personal level with our families, but then also how does our society respond? And I don't know, man, I just, I mean, you mentioned rationing just with regard to like medical equipment and stuff, but I'm also just thinking about rationing in terms of food and supplies at home because I know that we have right now, you know, oh, we have delivery and we have Amazon and we have, you know, you can still get takeout from a restaurant and you can still go to the grocery store and you can still go to the pharmacy. But what happens when we get to the point where like all the people who work at the pharmacy or the grocery stores or delivery or restaurants get sick? I mean, everyone acts like these people are immune to the disease for some reason. I'm not sure why. But um, I guess because we rely on them so heavily right now that we're just like hoping and people are translating, they're letting hope like that's personal translate into hope that's not realistic. Like that's not, you mm -hmm. know, scientific, um, scientifically backed. But like, I remember everyone talking about how, oh, the restaurants are going to shut down, but we're still going to have takeout. And I just kept thinking like, okay, what happens when restaurant workers get sick? They have to stand together in a, in a, in a back room when they're cooking things like there's no social distancing there. And there, I know that they say it can't be transmitted through food, which is good, but I'm just thinking about like employee safety in general, they're all working together and they don't just go straight home. They may have to go run errands. They may have to go to the grocery store. They have their own family who's doing the same. And then Still so it, on public transportation in many cases. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And like that, those things are just kind of neglected. I think people aren't, aren't considering like what happens when they get sick. I've seen some reports about, um, you know, how to deal with potential food shortage if farm workers get sick en masse. And in many cases, as we talked about with Elise, you know, we're looking at people who are not necessarily all documented, who are working under precarious situations, who are, you know, conditions that are not the greatest, um, employers who are abusive and neglectful of their employees' needs, et cetera. So like, are we looking at what may be at some point a shortage even of workers in that sector and then thus a shortage of food um, and how we're going to deal with that as a society. And unfortunately, I don't think of Americans as the best at this sort of thing. Um, I see their reactions. Like I remember early on when they were talking about how many people were going to buy guns and that gun sales had gone up and like those sorts of stats. When I hear stuff like that, I just get really scared um, because, you know, people get desperate and behave in ways that are aggressive, but also I think I mean, less, less so aggressive people who are um, desperate and more so people who are already doing okay and have means. I mm -hmm. feel like they, they clamp down even more and become more aggressive, not so much support people. Although the other day, like I've heard that in my neighborhood, 
there was a woman who got robbed and it was like the guy who robbed her didn't take money or her purse or anything. He robbed her of her takeout box. And this was like a, the, the person apparently said that he was desperate and he had to feed his family. Like his, they didn't have any food at home. And I just thought to myself, you know, like, geez, like this is very much reminding me of things that I remember reading about the great depression. Like we had to read a book by Studs Terkel when I was in high school called hard times. And it was all about the, it was like these essays, collection of essays about the depression and like personal accounts um, from people who had survived the depression. And I don't know, it's just, it's, it's a lot to take in. It's a lot to take in and I'm doing my best to try to stay calm, but I'm also just really concerned and anxious about what happens next. And we don't even, we have no end in sight. I think that's the scariest part, the unknown, you know, like, and there's just so many layers that like basically the parts of society that many of us were able to turn a blind eye towards by and large are coming to the forefront and and it's in ways of and sometimes desperation as you point out uh there and like one of the things that comes to my mind is like there's a lot of uh people that are on the street that are reliant on the pedestrian traffic that's just disappeared uh-huh. and it's they didn't just stop being reliant on on that like they still have no uh, systems in place uh, in the cities or in, in social networks to be able to provide those resources that are now simply just gone and it's like that's just a that like they started feeling this right away as soon as cities started shutting down it's like they didn't just switch to eating takeout more often and you know maybe learning like looking up some pinterest recipes it's like they mm-hmm. had like it was a very real threat to their their survival immediately like not just the virus itself but society's shift to accommodate the like protecting the rest of society from the virus sacrifice them immediately like, right it, and and so it, and it's just been a trickle down of, of that or trickle up in the sense of just moving up society until we get to a threshold where uh, society isn't maintainable anymore and it's some in many ways uh, the kind of analogy that I see it in is, is like the people that are making these decisions, the people in power that are saying, Hey, we need to get back to work. Maybe we got to sacrifice some elderly citizens to do it. Is like that kind of uh, mentality, that thought process is uh, endangering all of us. And they're, it's driven in my view by uh, a, something I would I'd articulate as addiction basically. And that it, it supplants any sort of rational or logical thinking and is only focused on a short-term fix and and then fix, I mean, you know, satisfaction of accumulating more wealth and uh, the consequences be damned. And so the, the concepts of millions of people dying because of a lack of medical resources resulting in an economy getting started sooner as a result of herd immunity is a much more like reasonable idea to the the types of people that actually have the ability to make those decisions and that is definitely concerning to me in general and and so like and then with the alternative being a lockdown and quarantining an authoritarian police state uh, administered by the trump administration and so mm-hmm. in some ways uh, i feel like our options uh the good options are limited that in that they are <laughs> oh. Good, good options are in short supply right now. I think yeah. uh, the community organizing and the mutual aid networks uh, both actually just 
becoming a part of something that people know exists. You know, it's like a mutual aid network is not even a term I was very familiar with myself, uh, even just a few months ago. And so like that, that concept I think is good. And that the opportunities that are in uh, this situation where we find society, where we have to reorganize society. And so it's important that we choose wisely when it comes to how we reorganize it. And uh, there's definitely a strong contingent that just wants to go back to how it was. And not only is that not sustainable as this event shows us, but it's also not equitable or just. And so to take this opportunity and use it to get back to normal is a a catastrophic waste in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. Richard, what are we going to do? Oh, you know, I I think we're just going to keep doing a lot of what we're doing, hopefully. You know, I think a a lot of people were getting put on the right track uh, post-2016 when I think a lot of us recovered from kind of the emotional and psychological, uh, like, devastation that that might have brought in a variety of ways from just kind of the the effort the physical efforts that people put into the campaign and the kind of emotional and psychological investments that people had in the idea of a Bernie Sanders presidency and so like this election season isn't over and uh like I I'm not an electoral politics person generally but I I do think that there is an opportunity as we see that we're going to need to change society to accommodate this virus as far as voting access goes. And so uh, the mail-in balloting part of this is still something that as far as people that are still engaged in electoral politics and that harm reduction aspect that I think it is a viable avenue towards, uh, there is opportunity there that uh, we could enfranchise millions of people that wouldn't have otherwise voted simply by uh, making mail-in balloting more ubiquitous. Yes, it is. It, it's something that we have to definitely put, as you said, make ubiquitous, make, ugh, make ubiquitous, but put around the country. But then I'm like, even mail-in voting is like so weird right now. You know, just the idea of voting period is weird at the moment. Um, you know, like how are we, how are we still fulfilling our civic duties and engagement with this going on? And what does that look like? What does it even look like to have governance at this point and to transition governance at this point? Like, if okay, let's say Trump is voted out of office and we get Joe Biden for God's sake, but whatever. What if we get him? What does a transition of government look like under these conditions? Right? Like there's a lot of ceremonial stuff that like presumably most of these the people there will have avoided getting uh, infected, but will still be before there's a reliable inoculation. So they still can't uh, you know, congregate in that way without putting themselves at risk, especially because they're going to inevitably be mixing with the populations that are also, that are regularly exposed and so in, in that type of environment and so it's an excellent point you raise about just even the transition and really one of the things is they missed it in this phase three package and if they don't get mail-in balloting uh, in like a at least a of a real approach to trying to implement it in this phase four package it's going to be too late like our governments aren't able to function fast enough and and to do the types of uh reorganization as far as the actual physical requirements to do a statewide mail-in ballot if they don't wrap it into this next package it's just going to be too late and then so then with that without mail-in balloting how do we even have an election right exactly exactly we can't we can't i mean i just remember when they were doing still primary voting 
and Biden's people are like, yeah, come out and vote. And I'm like, are y'all serious right now? Like, they, I don't know. Now we so see many... like they moved a bunch of polling locations to impoverished, predominantly black uh, senior centers. And now we're seeing explosions in Chicago. Right. So... Oh, on that note, the baby is crying. And uh, I think it's an appropriate stop time just before we start spiraling into total anxiety inducing institutions <laughs> I mean, information I, 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 share the infor- I, I share that feeling so <laughs> the baby was like yeah this is my cutoff point i'm good <laughs> um no but it's just so there's a lot to wrap our heads around and that i'm it's it's a lot it's just a lot that's the only word i have for it. it's a lot it's a um, lot and i'm just happy that we're <laughs> able to check in with each other and check in with the audience and we're all able to just kind of uh remember that we're part of uh larger communities that are experiencing similar things and that we can reach out to each other and and find you know support and also you know valuable information about how to get through the challenges that people are facing especially you know certain like new york and washington are going to be dealing with some of these things sooner than uh, other states and so you know if you have friends or family that are in those areas uh, while checking up on them you can also uh, get information about what's working what's not working as far as uh, their personal practices in home and in their mm-hmm. communities and that's a good point too, just for me to say, um, as we close, like we will still be providing content here. Um, and, you know, like I mentioned before, before I went on leave, I was going to start doing the um, left POC of the week, little history bits here and there. So I'll start doing that um, a little bit more. And then, you know, we'll still be doing interviews. Everybody's at home right now. So at least we know that uh, being able to interview people will be a little bit easier. <laughs> like, we won't, we won't have any much now. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, you're not going to be traveling out of the country for research now. Awesome. So I know I can pin you down a little bit. Um, but in general, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, providing some sense of normalcy, if you will, through content is helpful. It's been definitely helpful for me to know that, like, there are certain podcasters or like, you know, YouTube people that are still presenting content, putting out news and whatnot. Um, it kind of helps me feel like not all is lost. Like <laughs> there's still mm-hmm. some aspects of the life, the time before that, that are still around. And so that's helpful. Um, and I think that, you know, we'll do the best that we can to provide that. Also, just as a reminder to everyone on our Patreon page, which is hundred percent free, you can always find old episodes and old readings and things like that, that I think, Right now, people have more time to explore, but also may feel more relevant in a lot of ways, right? Um, ways to think about new horizons, new politics, new ways of thinking about government and society and life and, you know, what the what the potential is for a moment like this, as harrowing and tragic as it is, and as often, as I keep saying, anxiety-inducing and scary, there's also the prospect of, like, this becoming a really positive thing. Um, on the other side. And so we have to kind of keep our wits about us and make sure that we're prepared for the time that comes after all of this, whenever it may be, um, hopefully sooner than later. But um, what what kind of society we want to live in and what kind of person or people we want to be within that society. Um, And I think that, you know, things that we've discussed thus far and we'll continue to discuss help sort of open the doors there. So hopefully people are engaged. Yeah, I'm just thinking of a uh, Carlos Mariela and like how oh, yeah. I, I'm feeling that a little bit more. But uh, I think that there's a lot of great, excuse me, uh, content back there that if you haven't uh, listened to, a lot of it is still very relevant and still very uh, useful information. And so I would definitely go back and listen if you haven't. And uh, I 
I thank you again, Wendy, for the opportunities and uh, sharing the space. Yeah, man, doing what I can. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's all I got. I'm, I'm doing what I can. I'm, I'm hoping that, again, I'm hoping that other people continue to work towards these ends and, and really just, I don't know, like, I think I, I should put this out there again. Um, this is something I said in the beginning, but um, just with regard to like our model here at Left POC, and I know the, the sort of slightly similar um, models that some other lefty podcasts that are coming out as well, but like things that we can do to really make sure that people who are participating and putting out this kind of work and content are also taking care of themselves and being healthy and like happy um, and making sure that we have sort of a sense of community about us and also that we're looking out for one another even on these really microcosmic levels too, like y'all pay your employees, pay people who help you with your podcast, pay people who are guests, pay people or like assist in some way, give back to the community that you're serving and not just through the podcast itself, but through other means. Um, you know, I don't know. I just feel like we, this is a time when we can really sit and reevaluate. Are we doing enough? Um, and, and how to do more within the, the means and sort of limited space that we have right now, but it still is possible. And I think that, you know, trying to find those alternatives is important. Yeah, so. definitely. It's like, don't overexert. Like, you know, if your pitcher's empty, you can't fill anybody else's glass, but don't stop trying. Like we have to keep trying and, and keep on putting in the effort and keep on doing what we can do within reason and within our own limits uh, because we, we need each other and we can't rely on, the the people in power to take care of us because they've shown us time and time again that they'll let us wither on the vine oh of course of course <sighs> all right well thank you again thanks to our listeners who have been keeping on with us during this weird period of time um and also during my like quote-unquote maternity leave uh thanks for sticking <laughs> around <laughs> Thanks for sticking around and still listening and donating and telling friends and family about us. And again, you know, now that you're cooped up inside, hopefully a podcast like ours will come as a little spark of hope and joy in your life, or at least if not that, a little bit of rage for you to carry on into whatever comes after this, because we know that there's going to be a fight ahead um, that we need to be prepared for. So anyway, thanks. Struggle continues, but we can do it together. Indeed. Have a good one, y'all. to this episode of the Left Pocket Project podcast. As per usual, you can find us on social media by searching for Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T POC. You can give us a donation and find more um, reading materials, articles, books, discussions, podcasts, all for free on our Patreon, and that's patreon.com slash leftpoc. You can donate a dollar or more um, there to support our podcast, which is completely listener-funded. Um, and you can also just share, like, subscribe, tell a friend, tell a family member. Heck, we're all stuck inside right now, at least if you're being responsible and or if you don't have what's considered an essential job. Um, so please, like, definitely tell people about us. Tell them to listen. Um give them a little nudge here and there to check us out um leave a comment or two on the itunes page and just in general feel free to interact with us we know it's a difficult time we know that you know we're going through some things you might be going through some things and at this point we really need to do what we can to support 
one another um, and not just from a political standpoint but from a personal standpoint because at the end of the day we're all people so I hope that everyone is taking good care of themselves and their loved ones family friends colleagues um, and please just be safe out there do what's advised by the government and the CDC um, be vigilant of course in your protecting yourselves and others that are close to you but also be sure that you're constantly kept aware of or keeping aware of what's going on um, so that you can be ahead of the curve in terms of preparation um, and knowing how to stay safe and healthy. So thanks everyone again. Have a good one.